If you have your Bibles with you, you can open them to Acts chapter 2. We're going to be in verses uh, 14 through 41. We're going to try to make our way through it relatively uh, quickly. It's a lot of verses, but I think we can move through it and gather uh, what it is that Peter and the Spirit have for us in the words that Luke uh, records. But we're in the process of working our way through Acts uh, the book, and we're going to break in a few weeks. Um, it's hard to believe that we are on the doorstep of uh, Advent and the new year, and so um, we'll take a break there and then pick back up and begin to work our way through it again at the start of the year. But for today, we're in Acts 2, uh, chapter 2, verses 14 through 41. We didn't read the entirety of it. We're going to make our way through it. But if you've read ahead or you're aware of Peter's words here, what he speaks, you'll not notice that something is missing in Peter's sermon that is prevalent in our modern ideas of gospel presentation and evangelism and how we think about what it means to share the gospel. You may be asking yourself, well, what is it that's missing from our perspective, from Peter's proclamation of Jesus and call uh, to repentance? What is it that is prevalent in how we think about and proclaim the gospel today that seems to be missing from Peter's words? And what we find missing, if, if we read it and we're honest, what we find missing in Peter's proclamation that we would think is necessary is the lack of the gospel of self-actualization. Ashley Hales writes the following in her book, Finding Holy in the Suburbs. There's also a particularly Christian version of the self-actualization narrative. It's found in hearing how the salvation story revolved around me and God's wonderful plan for my life. This story wound its way around us so that mission trips were validations for the goodness of a soul. It grew a vocabulary around a person's seriousness about living for Jesus and a subsequent call to change the world by doing big, exotic things. This story found a liturgy in the hours of personal Bible study and puritanical evaluation of the dark nights of the soul. Now, it's not that these activities are wrong, but that Christian piety, belief, and practice continue to be wrapped in a narrative of the self where the I is the key to unlocking faith. God does have a wonderful plan for your life, but blessedly that is not the point. Redemption is not, in fact, all about you. Freedom is not about you at all. It is not a freedom from an escape from the constraints of community, but a freedom for community. Freedom is a far grander story than a suburban bootstrapperism where your worth is measured in square footage. What Ashley Hells gets at there and what Peter helps correct in, as we look at the sermon today is the truth that the good news of our redemption is the good news of what God has done for us. Outside of our plans for our life, outside of everything else we think is wrapped up in the gospel, the best news is that God has acted to free us from sin and death and set us free then to live on mission. But if we're honest, we struggle with sharing the good news of the gospel because what we try to do often today is we try to thread the needle of gospel presentation where we know Jesus' call is to take up our cross and follow him. And we try to narrowly thread a needle that we can't thread to say, you can take up your cross and follow Jesus and, God, and still have the life you've always dreamed of. We try to find a way to present a gospel that would be costless to those who would believe. We live a life that displays a costlessness of following Jesus, that you can follow Jesus and just do what you've always been doing. What we need to recover is the reality that God has freed us from sin, 
God has freed us from a narrow view of our life being the best we could imagine it to be and embrace what it means to love and follow Jesus. We struggle because we try to share the gospel through the lens of the American dream that says I'll only follow and give my life to something if it frees me to find personal fulfillment and autonomy. My prayer for us then this morning is that we would give ourselves to faithfully proclaiming the good news of the gospel, that the Son sets us free from sin and sets us free from mission. Let's pray. God, we are grateful this morning. We're grateful for Peter's words. We're grateful for the testimony of Scripture that the good news of our salvation doesn't center on us. It centers on the crucified, resurrected, exalted, reigning Savior, Lord, and Messiah, Jesus. It centers on the plan from eternity past that we're experiencing here that carries on into eternity future. The plan that centered around God coming in the flesh in the form of a baby boy who would grow up and live the life that we couldn't live and die the death that we deserve. Our redemption centers on Jesus. We find ourselves most fully alive when we find ourselves surrendered to Jesus, taking up our cross and following him. That's the gospel we've been called to invite people into. So this morning, our prayer for us is that we would embrace the costliness of the message. We would embrace a full presentation of that costliness to those who don't know you. And we would display the beauty of that costliness in our everyday life for the glory of God and for the good of our neighbors. In Christ's name, amen. Luke picks up after the Spirit has rushed on and they have gone out of the upper room and they begin to speak in the tongues of the known people as we looked at last week in Acts 2, 5 through 13. And as they're out there about and all this is breaking loose, Luke picks up the story there in Acts 2, 14. We're still in the midst of everyone asking, what does this mean as these disciples have flooded out of the upper room and are starting to speak in these other languages? And this is what Luke writes for us in 2, 14 through 21. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall, it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The first item on Peter's agenda is to quell the confusion surrounding the, the disciples and their seeming gibberish to the untrained ear. No, the disciples are not drunk. But if they aren't freshly inebriated or brutally hung over at 9 o'clock in the morning, then what is the explanation for what is happening? Peter brings the clarification by going back to the Old Testament prophet Joel. Joel was an Old Testament minor prophet who's call, who was called by God to prophesy to Judah and Jerusalem, to call them to lament of their sin and their wandering, to lament the presence of idolatry and the turning of their back to God. And 
Joel calls them to lament their sin, to confess of their sin, and then to turn back to God to experience his restoration and his healing and his forgiveness. And one of the evidences that Joel says would be contingent or that would show the truth that God had turned, that they had turned to God and the presence of God was in the midst of the people of God, would be the outpouring of the Spirit in a new and profound manner that crossed every man-made line of division and alienation. And so Joel says, when the Lord visits, when there is this presence of the Spirit poured out on everyone, in the Old Testament, the Spirit would just be given in spurts. It would be given to accomplish a specific task, and then the Spirit would be gone again. Joel gives this permanent pouring out language, that the Spirit would be poured out, but it wouldn't just be on men. It wouldn't just be on the advanced in age. The Spirit would be poured out on young and old alike, on men and women. And this is profound in what Peter is communicating because most of the rabbis in that day thought that with the last of the Old Testament prophets, that the prophecy, that the ministry of prophecy had been closed forever. But if there were to be a return to prophecy, there were to be a return where people would be prophetic in their speech, it would signal the dawn of the Messianic era. And so Peter's saying what Joel prophesied is happening. The dawning of the Messianic era is here. But what you don't see happening is there's very little prophesying of future events. Prophesying can be one of two things. It can be a foretelling where you tell what is yet to happen, which is what we see in the Old Testament, where they would prophesy about coming judgment, coming exile, coming restoration. But prophecy can also be a foretelling where you tell what has already happened, and you give people the chance to respond to the truth of what has already happened. And that's what we see in Acts 2 with the pouring out of the Spirit and the return of prophecy in the Messianic age. We move beyond just all foretelling, and we move to forthtelling, where everyone, man, woman, young and old, poured out, having the Spirit poured out on them, is freed to share the gospel. Peter is telling the gathered crowd, a crowd made up of mainly devout Jews, that this is what they're witnessing. They're witnessing the far fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. And what Peter is demonstrating here and will continue to demonstrate in Acts 2, 22-36, and what we see Paul later do when he quotes Greek poets to the Athenians and the Areopagus, what we see here is the contextualization of the gospel. Peter here goes to the story and the prophecies known by the Jews that would help them know and understand what is unfolding before them. And this is one of the key works of the disciples both then and now. Is how do we contextualize the gospel so that it makes sense to those we're sharing it with? How do we take the good news of what God has done for us in Christ and present it in a way that makes sense to those that we are sharing the gospel with. The first thing we must do is listen. So often when we think about evangelism, when we think about preaching, when we think about sharing our faith, we put all the pressure on ourselves to sit down and start talking immediately. Like, if we don't hurry up and get this out of our system, we're going to chicken out and not share it. So let me sit down before listening and just bombard you with the truths of the gospel. Oftentimes, what makes effective evangelism and what makes us effective in gospel proclamation is first taking the time to listen. To know the questions that are being asked. Peter 
has a leg up on us in this regard because he's surrounded by devout Jews. So he can start without really having to do much listening. But what you see as the story of the church unfolds throughout Acts, as you see the letters that Paul and others write in the New Testament, what you see throughout church history is that the gospel is most effectively proclaimed when the disciples of Jesus take the time to listen first, to figure out how it is that the gospel can be shared in a way that makes sense for the questions and the desires and the needs and the worries and the fears and the hopes of the people we're sharing it with. So the first thing we do is listen. And then we've got to think creatively, not because we're going to change the message, but because we need to figure out how to enter into the story that the people are living and then lead them back out of their story by addressing the validity of their hopes and their dreams and their fears and their desires. We go into that story with them and then we lead them out of it to see how what they hope other things would fulfill finds its ultimate fulfillment in the gospel and the truth of who Jesus is. That's what Peter's doing. He's going into the Old Testament story where they're all familiar with what's going on, and then he leads them back out of it to say, what you are hoping to be true is now true. The Messiah is here. The Messianic age has dawned. Believe and trust. Peter speaks the truth of the gospel in a way that the people around him can understand, and so we must do the same. And the good news is that this isn't a job reserved just for men. And it's not reserved just for the theologian. The good news is that when the Spirit is poured out in the life of a believer, and the Spirit begins to work in that person, then that person is equipped by the power of the Spirit to share the good news. Which means if you're here and you've trusted Jesus and the Spirit of God lives in you, the same Spirit, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in you, and it equips you to be able to faithfully share the gospel. The question for us then is, do we really believe that? Do we believe that the Spirit, through our words, through our efforts, is still powerful enough to change hearts, even in our feeble attempts? This is where we can't allow an overinflated view of God's sovereignty to stall us out in being faithful witnesses to the gospel. Peter's going to deal with this in a moment. But Peter's going to com- confirm and affirm God's sovereignty in all things. But Peter didn't allow that to keep him seated in the upper room going, well, God's going to do what he's going to do, and we don't even know what questions we might get asked, and so how are we going to go share the good news of the gospel if we're not even sure about all the ways that the gospel would work itself out in the lives of the people we're going to go share it with? Look, we need to take six weeks and do a gospel-intensive study to make sure we understand it, and then, only then, if we feel really comfortable like we couldn't possibly screw it up, then we'll go out and share the good news. The Spirit rushes in. They're given the ability to communicate with all the Jews present from all over the known world. And they just go out and start telling them the good news about what Christ has done. And in order to get people to listen more fully, Peter says, don't be be freaked out about what you're hearing. This is the fulfillment of a prophecy from long ago. The words of Joel are finding their fulfillment now. We need to avail ourselves to the Spirit's power and the work of the Spirit in us so that we would be faithful to speak the good news of the gospel. 
And then in 22 through 36, Peter's just going to continue to contextualize the gospel for the people that are listening. He says this starting in 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, Peter goes on to say, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. That he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Peter, in the heart of this first sermon preached, goes on to tell how the Spirit came to be poured out. He goes back and he recounts for those listening how we got to the prophecy of Joel being fulfilled. And it was because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Notice how Peter centers everything, not on what they're hearing from the disciples, but on the finished work of Jesus. It would be a cause for marvel and wonder for those present to want to make this all about the disciples who are speaking to them. Peter says before, no, 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 no. This is all about Jesus' work on our behalf. This is all about Jesus being exactly who he says he was, through his works, through his signs, and through his wonders that you saw with your own eyes. This Jesus whom you know and saw walking the streets and saw doing his ministry and heard his teaching and saw miracles performed by him, this Jesus is the reason the Spirit has been poured out in this way. And one of the most notable points that Peter lays out is the tension and inescapability of the presence of both God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, especially in chapter 2, verses 23 and 24. The ESV Study Bible notes this. Peter combines a clear affirmation of God's sovereignty over world events and human responsibility for evil deeds. Although Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, showing that God had both foreknown and foreordained that Jesus would be crucified, that still did not absolve of responsibility those who contributed to his death. Though one may not understand fully how God's sovereign ordination of events can be compatible with human responsibility for evil, both are clearly affirmed here. This was true for the death that led to the resurrection of Jesus, and it is still true today. God, yes, is sovereign over salvation. God is sovereign over all of history. But God's sovereignty does not mean that we are absolved of our responsibility for our actions. 
We are not puppets on a string being tilted about and moved about by the omniscient hands of a God like Geppetto. God sovereignly rules over all things, but we still bear responsibility for our actions, both sinful and righteous. We bear responsibility for the life we lead. We bear that responsibility even as we participate in the unfolding of God's story of redemptive history. But here's the good news. Here's the good news that Peter hides here. It's the good news that Joseph would affirm all the way back in Genesis. God's sovereignty is such that even the worst, most heinous evil acts of men, God is able in his sovereignty to turn and use for his glory and for his purposes. That's good news. God foreordained and foreknew everything that would happen to Jesus. There was no surprise at any point in Jesus' life, and especially in that Passion Week leading up to his death and his crucifixion. But just because God knew it does not mean that those who participated in it were absolved from their responsibility for being the ones who would try Jesus in a kangaroo court as the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin did, nor does it absolve those Romans who drove the nails through the wrist and through the feet of Jesus and hung him on the cross, still fully responsible for their actions. And this is how God continues to work in the world. We don't know all the reasons why certain things are allowed to happen. And sometimes just evil things happen, and God's not the author of evil deeds. But God is still able to use even the worst intentions of the human heart to accomplish his sovereign purposes. And if he can use evil to accomplish his purposes, he can also use the good works he's called you to. He can also work. If he can turn the worst intentions of the evilness of the human heart to accomplish his good purposes, he can use your faithful obedience in the same way. He can use your faithful obedience to accomplish his purposes. He's not just looking for a bunch of fools to run around sinning so he can just turn sin into good things. That's why Paul writes in Romans, where the grace of God has appeared, does that mean we go on sinning? No, we don't. But we all have to understand that God sovereignly uses both the evil intentions of the human heart and the faithful obedience of his disciples to accomplish his plans in history. His arm is not too short. His power is not too weak. He is looking for those who would believe and trust in him, not only for the forgiveness of their sins, but believe and trust in him that he would work in a way that you could not begin to comprehend in your faithful obedience to accomplish his purposes in the world. He's going to do it. He's inviting you to participate with it. Will you do it? He's given you the spirit. He's given you the ability to read and understand the scriptures. He's given you a life with friendships and acquaintances and opportunities to share the gospel. But you are not responsible for saving anyone, but you are responsible for being faithful to proclaim the good news of what Christ has done. And then watch what God does. But we'll never know part of what God can do if we're not willing to risk faithful obedience, even when we don't know the outcome. Think about Peter's boldness in this moment. They've just crucified Jesus less than a year before this. You're probably six months out from Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection or less. 
Peter stands up and proclaims this to the men and women who would have cheered his crucifixion on. He doesn't know if it's going to mean the loss of his life. But there's something about the good news of the gospel and the spirit at work in us that causes us to share in faithful obedience even when we don't know if anyone will believe or what it will cost us. We trust in the sovereignty of God to use our obedience to accomplish his purposes in the same way he would use the evil intentions of the heart of others to accomplish his purposes. Peter then quickly moves back into contextualizing the gospel by appealing to King David and the Psalms. Like, if you're going to go really anywhere outside of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the Old Testament to make your point about who Jesus is, and you've got a crowd of those captive to you who are steeped in the Old Testament, who have memorized more than likely the first five books of the Bible, the ones we never make it through in our yearly Bible reading, they've got committed to memory. They know all 150 Psalms, more than likely by heart. If you're going to go somewhere to contextualize the good news of who Jesus is, make a beeline for David in the Psalms if you're not going to go Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that's what Peter does. First, he quotes Psalm 16, 8 through 11 in Acts 25 through 28. And here Peter is making the argument that since David is dead and buried, and he says so much in verse 29, that his tomb is nearby, that King David then in this psalm must have been prophesying about one to come. And that one has proven to be Jesus. There's only one, as 25 through 28 says, that was not abandoned to Hades, that did not see corruption. There's only one who has defeated death, and it is Jesus. David was delivered to death and waited for his time to be resurrected in the good news of who Jesus is. But David is dead and buried and decayed in his tomb. So David is not speaking of himself. David the king is prophesying about one to come. And then he goes on from there. To, and he alludes to Psalm 132.11 in Acts 2.30. And with its callback of the prophecy given to David in 2 Samuel 11.16, where 2 Samuel 7.11-16, where it is told to David by Samuel that there will be one who will sit on his throne for eternity with an everlasting dominion and kingdom. Peter does this to reiterate that the Messiah will be one from David's line, which was the message of the angel Gabriel to Mary when telling her about being the mother of Jesus in Luke 1, 32. So Jesus is the only one to not see corruption. Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophecy to David in 2 Samuel 7, 11 through 16. And lastly, and most perhaps importantly, Peter quotes directly from Psalm 110. Why does this matter? Because Psalm 110, think about all the scripture in the Old Testament, from Genesis 1 to the end of Malachi. Think about every verse in there. Think about every chapter, every bit that you've got memorized, every bit you've forgotten about. Would you have guessed that Psalm 110 is the most alluded to and cited Old Testament passage in the New Testament? Psalm 110 mattered to everyone that was hearing Peter preach. They knew it. They knew the hope that it stirred in them. And so Peter goes there because those words of King David were ingrained and seared into the hearts and minds of those hearing his message. So he says in 34, For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. They understood that this prophecy of David, this psalm of David, was where all their messianic hopes hinged. 
that there was one greater than David coming who would not taste or see corruption and who would be seated at the right hand of the Father. And so Peter goes there because Peter knows that they know. Peter's driving home the point yet again from another psalm to say this is the good news of who Jesus is. The NIV Study Bible notes, Peter cites Psalm 110.1 as evidence that David predicted not only Jesus' resurrection, but also his exaltation. David himself did not ascend to heaven, but spoke of God the Lord exalting the Messiah, my Lord, to sit at his right hand. The reason this passage is cited and quoted more than any other is because the early church recognized that it predicted the Messiah's vindication in his exaltation. So we come back again and again, the early church would to Psalm 110. Because they knew that in the words of David, especially in Psalm 110.1, the vindication of Jesus' resurrection was seen in his being seated at the right hand of the Father. All of this, though, is done to communicate the inescapable truth of the person and work of Jesus. Peter isn't doing this to impress those that are hearing him with his Bible knowledge. Peter isn't doing this because he won the sword drill in his local synagogue. Peter is doing this because he wants those that are before him to clearly hear and understand who Jesus is. And he says as much in three verses, Acts 2, 32 through 33, and then down in verse 36. This is what Peter says. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. The one born the Messiah, the one anointed as the Messiah, the one killed as the Messiah, is now in his resurrected body, both vindicated, uh, is vindicated, exalted, and enthroned by God as Lord over all. This is what Peter wants that first audience to hear and to see and to know, is the truth of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And that's the aim of every faithful gospel presentation ever. Doesn't matter where you start or how you get there, you want to land at a place where you would say, God has made him both Lord and Christ, the Jesus who was killed on the cross. That's where we've got to get people to. It doesn't matter where you start, preferably not in sin. No, the, let me be clear. We don't start in sin. But wherever we start the conversation, we're getting people here. That's where Peter got him. He took him to Joel. He took him on an overview of three Psalms to get them to this point that they would see and know the truth of who Jesus is. And that's what we want those we share the gospel with to see and to know. The truth of who Jesus is. And so then we get this in verses 37 through 41. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Now this is what we hope happens every time we share the gospel the first time, right? This is what our hearts really desire. Let me share the good news of the gospel with you. I hope that you're going to say, Oh, so this is what it means to be saved. I'd really like to do that today. 
This is what our hearts crave and desire. Oftentimes it's not the case. This is what Peter gets in this moment. They are cut to the heart. And they say to Peter and the rest, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his words were baptized, and there were added to that, added that day about 3,000 souls. Good preaching, faithful evangelizing that tells the truth about God and our sin and the rescue to be found in Jesus always finds a way to address the heart of the hearers. And this is what we see happen here. But it isn't always the case. We always met with the question that Peter was asked about what do we do next? But when we are met with genuine and spirit-given interest in what it means to follow Jesus, are we ready to lay out the next steps? If you faithfully share the gospel and somebody says, well, what do I do next? Do you know how to lead them from their point of wanting to know what it is to love and to follow Jesus? Do you know the next steps for a believer? Peter lays it out for us, and it's not as difficult as we make it out to be. He tells those who are listening, repent, be baptized, and receive the Holy Spirit. <coughs> However, there is one thing we see missing from Peter's response to the crowd. He mentions repentance and baptism, but not faith. Shouldn't that, of all things, have made an appearance in his rundown of what it means to follow Jesus? The ESV Study Bible helpfully addresses this when it says, genuine faith always involves repentance and vice versa, meaning that genuine repentance always involves faith. Repentance includes a change of mind that ends up trusting God, which is having faith. And so when Peter says for them to repent and be baptized, that repentance carries with it the idea of faith being present as well. And Peter then goes on to say that the crowd will receive the Holy Spirit that has empowered the disciples. The Holy Spirit isn't just for the disciples and the apostles in that moment. The Holy Spirit is for everyone who is called by Jesus. The gospel and the Spirit are for their family and their friends and their fellow Jews, but it is also for the far-off ones, the Gentiles. And this sets the stage for the development of one of the major themes of Acts, namely that the gospel is for everyone, including the Gentiles. Pause with me for a moment and ask yourself the question, who in your mind would be the Gentiles in your life? Those that you think are outside of the bounds of being able to hear and know and receive the gospel. Because what Peter's asking, what Peter's telling them is going to happen is, you're going to end up going to the people you've not liked for a very long time. And you're going to see God save them. You're going to see the one who's seated on David's throne that was promised to him, the king of all kings as far as the history of Israel was concerned, the one now seated on his throne forever. He's not just stopping with your family and friends. He's going to the far off ones. He's going to the ones that you have thought for so long were beyond the reach of God's grace. 
the ones that you thought were the ones that would never know the sweet mercy of God in their life. That's where the gospel is going. Who are those people in our life? Who are the people that when we're around, we begin to catalog the reasons why it's not worth sharing the gospel with them? Who are the ones that we allow to sit in their sin because we've made up their mind for them that their answer to the truth of the gospel is going to be no, so why waste our time? Peter says the Spirit is coming and it's going to move you against the grain of your heart's thoughts and desires for who belongs to the family of God. You don't get to make up their mind for them anymore. You're not going to have ethnic or dietary reasons to keep them out. The floodgates are going to open and they're all coming in. Who is it for us that we withhold the gospel from because we think they're outside of the reach of God's grace and mercy? Spirit's got to break that down in us. Because the Spirit's empowering us not just to share the gospel with the people we like, but the Spirit empowers us to love and serve and share the gospel with our enemies as well. Peter then has this ongoing urgency, as Luke tells us, that Peter just continues to exhort and bear witness to the audience the truths of the gospel as the means by which they could be saved. And everything Peter does here remains true for us as disciples. First, the gospel is for everyone we know. There is nobody who is outside the reach of the grace of God found in Jesus. Second, the proclamation and exhortation for people to believe in the gospel, repent and follow Jesus, is never ending. We keep faithfully sharing the gospel until everyone hears. They've already asked what to do. Peter's told them. We think, all right, Peter, that's great, man. Just wrap it up. Like, we got to get moving to what? Peter just keeps going back, exhorting, calling them to faith, to repentance, to escape the crooked generation. We don't get off days from being faithful witnesses to the gospel. Peter arrives at a point where we would think, all right, dude, let's just be done for today. There's this urgency to Peter's message. It says, no, 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 we're not done yet. We're not done yet because you need to hear. You need to be encouraged to give your life to Jesus. So we keep going, and we keep sharing, and we keep sharing, and we keep sharing. That's what the rest of Acts is going to tell us. That's what we look back and see the faithful lives of missionaries down through the life of the church. That's what they've done. They've gone and they've shared. And whether it was one or 3,000 in a day, the next day, you know what they did? They got up and they did it again. Again and again and again. An exhortation and an encouragement for people to consider Jesus and to consider the life that he offers. In her book, Out of the Salt Shaker and Into the World, Rebecca Pippert writes the following. Christians and non-Christians have something in common. We're both uptight about evangelism. Our fear as Christians seems to be, how many people did I offend this week? We think that we must be a little obnoxious in order to be good evangelists. Attention builds inside. Should I, be in, should I be sensitive to people and forget about evangelism? Or should I blast them with the gospel and forget about their dignity as human beings? Many Christians choose to be aware of the person, but then feel defensive and guilty for not evangelizing. Our problem in evangelism is not that we don't have enough information. It's that we don't know how to be ourselves. We are called to be witnesses to what we have seen and known, 
not what we don't know. The key on our part is authenticity and obedience, not a doctorate in theology. We haven't grasped that it really is okay for us to be who we are when we are with seekers, even if we don't have all the answers to their questions or if our knowledge of the Scripture is limited. You can read Peter's sermon and go, I could not possibly weave Joel and three Psalms together to present the gospel. Most of the people that you know don't need to be led from Joel through the Psalms to hear about Jesus. They need to know from your mouth what you've seen and heard. They need to know the gospel that you've heard. They need to know all the ways you've seen God at work in your life. They need you to be you, not a superhero. You. In all your frailty and feebleness and uncertainty and doubts and fears, you leaning in and trusting and believing on Jesus, even when it doesn't seem to make sense to them, they need you to be you. Not to have all the answers, but to give faithful voice to what you've seen and what you've heard. Peter's boldness and clarity in the first sermon of the church in Acts 2 can feel intimidating for us as we consider how we might be faithful in sharing the gospel. We may not have the eloquence of Peter in this moment, but what we do have is the same spirit that filled Peter on Pentecost is the same spirit living in us today. Therefore, we don't need to be perfect. We need to be available. We don't need to have every answer to every hypothetical scenario we conjure in our minds. We don't need to know everything, but we do need to be faithful to testify to what we have seen and heard in our own lives. This is what Peter did, and this is what John affirms in 1 John 1, 1 through 4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things to you so that our joy may be complete. John lays it out beautifully in those four verses. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. Why? So that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, so John says, we want you to have fellowship with us as believers. But then John elevates where the fellowship really resides. Because there's a semicolon, and then John says, indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. I love inviting people into friendships that I already have. To enjoy fellowship with me and another person is one of the greatest joys of life. When you invite people into an existing relationship, it's not awkward or weird. It's just you're enjoying a relationship and you know, you know from personal empirical evidence in your life, the best relationships you have are not the relationships that you keep to yourself, but the relationships you share with other people. And the same is true for our relationship with Jesus. It's not a relationship built on theological navel-gazing and worry about all that we might get wrong. It's a relationship built on it being more deep and more profound and more enjoyable when we share it with others. 
both in the church and with those who have not yet put their faith in Jesus. Our richness of our fellowship with the Father and with the Son is enjoyed even more when the Spirit works through us to bring those outside in. Let's make ourselves available to that this week. Let's pray.